Hello and welcome back to Tower Talks, your conversational podcast from Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. This episode of Tower Talks is going to start a little differently. If you are part of the cathedral community, then you have likely heard about the recent changes the cathedral has had to undertake due to the ongoing challenges brought forth by COVID-19. Dean Randy penned a letter explaining the path forward, which can be found on the cathedral's Facebook page for you to read. Unfortunately, given these circumstances, this will be the last episode of Tower Talks for the time being. No matter what happens in the future, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for listening in to these conversations and for supporting this project that we've put so much love into. It has been an absolute joy to bring this podcast to life and to share it with you these past few months. I could not imagine a more wonderful guest for this episode than Chris Budney, a longtime docent at the cathedral with a deep love for architecture, building arts, and photography. I spoke with Chris about his path towards the cathedral, what he loves about the building, and the ways in which the cathedral has challenged him both as a docent and as an artist in the last two decades. Chris is a genuinely kind, funny guy who clearly loves the cathedral, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I enjoyed talking to him. So, without further ado, here's Chris Budney on Tower Talks. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me. I am very excited for our listeners at home to get to know you, especially those who may not have been on one of your tours or may not know who you are. So for those folks, uh, could you introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and what you do um, both inside and outside the cathedral? Sure. I uh, My name is Chris Budney, and I live in Northern Virginia since childhood, probably. And I'm a database analyst for a nonprofit organization that creates American jobs for people who are blind. Uh, And in addition to that, I, of course, am a volunteer tour guide or docent at the Washington National Cathedral. So how did you come to the cathedral? Like, what was the path for you like? (laughs) Uh, I I tell everybody I trace it back to my sister. Gosh, back in the early-ish 90s, I remember complaining to her about my relationship woes at that time. Mm-hmm. And she she's younger than I am. So she was probably, oh, I don't know, maybe she was 21. And her relationship advice was, well, if you had a hobby, you wouldn't notice so much. And <laughs> you love architecture. <laughs> <laughs> you, you love architecture. So go up to that big fancy church and see if they have anything to do. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. I had maybe been in the cathedral once or twice as a visitor before that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I went up there and decided to see if they had anything I could do. And, nice. and the rest is history. Yeah, they, they yeah. said, we, we really need docents and tour guides. And would you consider going through the training for that? And uh, I didn't know anything about the place, really. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was very nervous and apprehensive, but I, I signed up for it and never looked back. Do you remember your first impressions walking up to the cathedral and walking in for the first time? Like what struck you about the building? Uh, well, I think, my, I think my first time in the cathedral was probably two or three years before my sister nudged me there. Mm-hmm. And I was hanging out Christmas Eve with a good friend of mine. And for some reason, we either our families were away. For some reason, it was Christmas Eve and we didn't have anywhere to be with our families. Mm-hmm. So we were hanging out together. And very spontaneously, we decided, let's go to a service at the cathedral. And I think this must have been before the mail-in passes for the big service. Because we just walked in, Mm -hmm. well, elbowed in. There must have been 5,000 people in the building. It was elbow to elbow, standing room only, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we eventually found some standing room in a balcony mm-hmm. and stayed for the service. And it was it was just so amazing to be in the midst of such an enormous group uh, celebrating all together in that incredible space. Uh, I'd always liked Gothic architecture when I was in school. I always dreamed of planning vacations abroad that would be nothing but cathedral after cathedral after cathedral. <laughs> and so it was really, really something to be there uh, as, a, as a visitor. But that was probably, yeah, two or three years before my sister's advice took me in to, to see if I could do anything there. Because a lot of docents have been with us for a long time, and it sounds like um, that's true for you as well. Have there been any major events or landmark moments that also have stuck with you, um, you know, similar to the star- service that you were just talking about from a personal perspective? But I mean, the cathedral is host to many things. <laughs> have you been able to sort of uh, be there for any of those that stand out? Yeah, yes. Um, I've primarily I volunteer as a tour guide so mm-hmm. I haven't done ushering or or event uh, assistance very much every once in a while uh, I've dipped into those but but yeah, as you said it's been a long time I think my first tour was St. Patrick's Day weekend 1995 so I just marked my 25th anniversary last month mm-hmm. and uh, I would say the non-touring event that stands out most for me is actually a very recent one Mm-hmm. And that was Senator McCain's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to work for that. I'd never worked a state funeral before. Mm-hmm. And um, I volunteered for that and got uh, the okay. And it was remarkable, not only because my little task as a volunteer was really interesting in the end. I, I was out on the sidewalk near the circular driveway, assisting with dignitaries who were getting out of their car to be closer to the entry. Mm. Um, and so I just saw a who's who list of people walk mm. right in front of me and, and direct them. The door's just over there. The door's over there. And that was incredible. But then after that was all done, I got to go sit for the rest of the service. And it was so, it sounds so strange to say it about a funeral, but it was absolutely remarkable. Mm-hmm. The, the speakers from both sides of the political aisle during that service, you really came away with what elected public service should look like in the example he left behind. It was really impressive. That reminds me a lot of my experience with the Bush funeral, which happened, what, like a year after that or so, something like that? Yeah. yeah. McCain was right before I started or shortly before I started working at the cathedral. And then uh, Bush's funeral was my first week. So that was- Oh, wow. Yeah. Trial by fire. Exactly. (laughs) They were like, go set up about 8,000 chairs. And I was like, Okay. (laughs) That's what I did. So speaking of tours, you give a lot of tours, um, both regular sort of highlights tours and then also specialty tours. I know you most from tower climbs, although I'm sure there are other things that are in that sort of bucket of skills that you carry around with you. Do you have a favorite kind of tour to give and why is it your favorite? Yeah, I've done a number of tours over the years. The regular highlights has evolved under different leadership. We're under Jen now, and she's brought some some great enhancements and changes to the flow. That's such a ubiquitous tour that I wouldn't pick that one as my favorite, although it's the most, so that mm-hmm. that has to count for something. I recently brought back or, or dug back into uh, the tour for blind and visually impaired visitors and the nonprofit I work for that's sort of a perfect fit because they create jobs for people who are blind and I have a number of blind coworkers mm-hmm. who wanted to come in and experience the cathedral and I thought how am I going to do that for them 
Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody had written up a rough draft of the blind tour decades ago. And so I started there and tweaked it a bit. And uh, I've given that tour several times now, which is really interesting because it's very tactile. And as a result, I get to take the little group where, pretty much wherever I want to, wherever I think it'll be a unique tactile experience, whether it's on the regular tour path or not. Mm-hmm. And after giving the highlights tour for so many years constantly, it's lovely as a tour guide to get to do a little deviation from the normal path. So I really like that tour for that, but I, I would say what encapsulates that more than any other tour has to be the behind the scenes. That's my all-time favorite tour to give. I've been there long enough that I was there when Luann Bakey sort of developed that tour and mapped it out and put the little sticky labels hidden on the doorknobs and the, the mm-hmm. door jams to remind docents which way to go in the stairwells and, and uh, got trained up for that. And that was back before we had the welcome desk and the ticket system. So it was entirely word of mouth. Mm. And I felt like a like a carnival barker every every Saturday. I would just walk around from 10 to 1030 and try and persuade people to take this specialty tour. And they would pay at the docent desk if they wanted to take it. They pay, I don't know, an extra ten dollars or something. And we had a little sticker and we stuck it on their lapel. And uh, if I if I drummed up enough people, then we took that tour. Mm. And uh, it, was, it was just a lot of fun because it's you've been up there. It's mm. got incredible vistas outside and inside it's like a walk back in time through 80 years of construction technology and change Uh, it just never fails to leave the visitors impressed and and delighted i think what's funny is do all the tours (laughs) yeah i mean they all do but what's funny is that camille cited those two tours as her favorites to give as well Which is really funny. So there's something about both of those tours that offer, I think, a shift in perspective that is really valuable. And it's particularly fun for folks um, who have been at the cathedral for a long time to take visitors through sort of the unexpected and the stuff that you can't see just walking around on your own. Or at least that's my my understanding of why it's, you know, particular favorite for so many. Well, and there's something I think appealing in general to the specialty tours because they are, in fact, specialty tours. They're not offered all the time. They're either by appointment or by reservation. I know when I've been on vacation and if I go somewhere, like say uh, the first time I went to England, I had to see St. Paul's. And of course I had to take the dome tour and I had to pay extra for that. And of course I had, you know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. yes, I can walk around the nave and see all that. And I did, (laughs) but Mm -hmm this church offers all these other great things and I probably won't get here again for a long time. So I need to soak it all up. And there's just something so interesting about seeing that other perspective, especially I've always enjoyed architecture. I wanted to be an architect when I was in elementary school, but it did not work out. And so I, I, I always look for architectural elements on any of my vacations or travels. It's like, okay, what can I, what can I photograph there? What can I see there? What can I tour there? Mm-hmm. Show me some interesting architecture, some history. I love that stuff. So one of the things that I know about you, and it's kind of related to your interest in architecture, is that you do a lot of architectural photography as sort of a hobby interest, you know, special interest kind of thing. How and when did you start photographing the cathedral? Um, was that sort of part of your growth as a photographer, or was that something that you came to the cathedral with a background in? Oh, yeah. Actually, it was very much growth as a photographer. And it goes back to actually that that first trip to England. My first real 
vacation abroad ever was that trip to England with a good friend of mine who had been several times before, and he was a keen photo enthusiast, uh, had a remarkable eye for composition, but but didn't know anything about camera technology or or the photography settings. So he just shot everything on a nice, fully automatic camera. And his pictures were gorgeous because he knew how to compose. And so on the trip, I said, oh, I want a picture of that. And I want a picture of this and be sure and get a picture of that. And towards the end of the trip, I'm like, hey, can I borrow the camera and, and try some shots of some things I like that, that you're not shooting? And so we did that. And this was, oh, gosh, long time ago. <laughs> and so uh, memory cards were not inexpensive and towards the end of the trip, he ran out of space on his memory cards. And I don't know why neither one of us thought to just bite the bullet and pay the exorbitant fees overseas to buy it one more memory chip, but we didn't. And so it was his camera and my pictures had to go to make room for the things he wanted to photograph, which, you know, I didn't have a real problem with that because we'd already agreed he would give me a full set of everything he shot mm -hmm. for my scrapbook. But when I got home from that, I thought you just can't be at someone's mercy like that because uh, there were pictures I had taken with his camera that I was really looking forward to seeing at home and they were gone. Uh, so I came home, got a five megapixel Sony and a, uh, a book on photography, how to's and concepts and, and learned about shutter and aperture and ISO. And that was late 2005. And I think the first trip I took with it was down to Biltmore estate. I had a, a little vacation getaway planned there. And I, I used that as my first weekend with the camera. And probably three weeks later, I was shooting every weekend in the cathedral. It's mm. such a great place to learn photography, <laughs> which is what I needed mm. because it's full of subject matter. It's got great wide angle photography. It's got incredible macro detail photography. It's got impossibly frustrating contrast issues between deep shadows and bright lights. Mm -hmm. As beautiful as it is, it's a, not an easy place to photograph. And that was a good thing because it, it made me learn all those little nuances of my camera settings and uh, years and years of photography. I'm still photographing there and, and I still always smile that I haven't shot everything there yet. Yeah. <laughs> it never ends. It really doesn't end. There's so much subject matter and so many different compositions and so many ways to see it and, and capture it. Yeah. And certainly as, you know, the seasons change and the lighting shifts and there are different times of year where, you know, there's rainbow season and then there's not rainbow season and all of those different <laughs> things. It's kind of an endless well of source material for so many things. It is. And in fact, that, that lighting is one of the training exercises that I ended up following for about five or six years as my knowledge was growing and my camera gear would change and improve I would go every late fall, like November, December, and I would wait for a sunny morning and I'd go in before the building opened as a perk of being a volunteer mm -hmm. and um, shoot the South Arcade aisle of the nave, which in those early winter mornings, the sunlight is coming in almost horizontally. And so Wilson's tomb, for instance, is just spray painted in light and all the arches down that arcade are equally painted in light and I five or six years in a row I would just go reshoot that same exact scene with subtle 
variations in position and composition and the different lens types and uh, until I, I finally got, I, I think, oh, I got it. That's great. That's the picture I've always had in my head. And the next year I'd go back and then I would make a better picture <laughs> because I knew a little more or I had mm. a, a different lens or I had read more about a technique. So it really was uh, and still is in some ways a, an active training and refresher ground for me when I want to photograph. Mm -hmm. It is kind of wonderful to me that not only are there always things to learn about the cathedral just in terms of facts and information, right? But there's also a million myriad ways to view the cathedral that are new no matter how many years you've been part of it. That I think is really, really fascinating and something that as somebody who's been there for like a year and a half is kind of staggering. It really is. That really comes up for me in the way that over the years we've had a number of times where photographers can take photography specialty tours mm -hmm. where visitor services is arranged like, oh, you know, 20 photographers are coming in an hour before opening to photograph the empty cathedral. And I've often signed up as a guide for that. Mm -hmm. And so then you've got 20 people seeing it from the perspective of a photographer, but not me and not my perspective. And I think that's so amazing. I see stuff and I'm like, how did I never see that? I never saw it that way. And I've been bringing my camera here for 15 years and I never saw that one particular take on a subject. And it, you're right, it, it just, it never stops giving perspectives and, and slightly different ways of seeing the same old thing. And I, I think that's part of its strong appeal, not just for my photography, but why I'm still there 25 years later is it sounds cliche, but you can walk in and, and learn something new, see something new every single visit you make for the rest of your life and you won't exhaust the cathedral. In what ways has photography of the cathedral shifted your viewer perspective of the cathedral from like a touring and visitor perspective? Has it? I mean, I'm assuming it does, but maybe it hasn't. Uh, well, I'd say Again, using it as a learning ground, it refined my eye for uh, details, especially. First of all, you walk in and you're stunned by the light and the stained glass and the vastness of the space. But then once I started the photography there, there are all these rhythms that are in the building, uh, rhythms of lines and repeating shapes and receding perspectives, um, the masses of the space. And again, that really annoyingly challenging contrast of dark shadow and bright light. Um, these long vistas for when I finally got a wide angle lens, I couldn't stop shooting wide angle once I got a lens there. Mm -hmm. um, but then I would spend the next year shooting nothing but close up and macro. And it's like an onion or a lotus that just keeps peeling back layers and like, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen this? With that photography eye, it, that just constantly prompted me to keep looking at the stuff I would walk past as a tour guide every day. Mm -hmm. Oh, that little piece over there is not really on our tour, so I don't need to know much about it. But today I have my camera and I'm actually going to go look at it and my jaw will drop because it's this thing that I've been looking at for years and I never saw it until I stopped to really look at it. The, the one thing that jumps out at me like that way is in the, um, the space window, the famous space window. I, could not begin to count how many times I have talked about that window. It's on mm -hmm. every single tour. It's in our introduction. I sit right below it. I point it out. And one day as I was doing my little interpretation of it, I suddenly noticed that our sun is in that composition. There is one yellow star in that entire window. And that's why the sphere that perhaps suggests the earth at the bottom right 
is sort of radiant and glowing is it's being backlit by the distant sun. Way out in the bottom center of that window is a single yellow tiny star, bigger than all the other stars, but still quite tiny. And I had looked at that window for 20 years and had never seen the sun in it. Mm. And it just was this aha moment that, oh my gosh, I'm 20 years in and I didn't know that this image of space contained what I think of as our sun. I, I think of it very much in the, the sense of the sun, the earth, the moon. You know, I know Rodney, the artist, when he described it, didn't specifically label those things. But in my mind's eye, that's how I see them. And so when, when I saw the sun, it really just cemented it all for me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> look at this. We're out flying past the moon. There's the sun way in the background. The earth is kind of glowing because it's got this powerful backlight, which I, I didn't know what backlighting was until I started photography. So mm-hmm. it just all sort of clicked for me. And it was a detail that I had overlooked for years uh, that was right in front of me every day. Did you have that realization in front of visitors and did you express that to the visitors at the time or was that a moment of like absolutely oh. <laughs> yeah absolutely i was i was in the middle of talking about it and i try really hard not to make my highlights tours sound like a recording you know and i'll mm-hmm. i'll mix up sequences of what parts i tell where and and just so it doesn't sound like i'm on autopilot but the space window there's only so many things you can say about it and i was in the middle of describing the relationship of the sphere at the bottom to the sphere at the top and the lines that connect them diagonally and i just stopped and what is that that yellow oh my god that's the sun <laughs> <laughs> and this is going through my head as i'm standing in front of a group of people thinking oh uh oh, i have to tell them about this <laughs> this is really interesting and and i usually include in my tours that as a tour guide i'd never fail to walk into that building and see something or notice something or hear something about a, a bit of the building that i didn't know before and here it was happening in real time in front of my group <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the most common stop on every tour <laughs> yeah i mean it's the thing that most people come in and see i mean that's the thing that people are like where's the space window and we're all like it's over there yep <laughs> Um, yep. <laughs> but it's kind of funny that you like had that experience and you were like, wait a minute, guys, I was not kidding you. This is a new thing. Exactly. I've never noticed it until that one day. And, and now I see it every time, of course. Yeah. Once you see it, it's like impossible to unsee it. Exactly. So what's the best question you've ever had someone ask you about the cathedral? And what was the answer? I, you know, the, the question I, I like the most I don't know if that makes it the best one, but the one I like is is one that a lot of people used to ask, although I don't remember the last time someone asked it of me. And that is, you know, oh, who's the most famous person buried here at the cathedral? Mm. It's such a common, simple question because, of course, we grow up learning, like, you know, about Westminster and everybody who's anybody in England is laid to rest at Westminster. But that's not really what our cathedral is about. And I realize in a a flash one moment that nobody is buried at our cathedral in the sense of a traditional casket in the soil because we don't have a cemetery or a graveyard. Yes, we have 200 and some odd people laid to rest in the building, and now we have the memorial garden outside, but nobody's bodies are buried in the soil. And so I twisted the question back and said, well, actually, nobody famous is buried here Mm -hmm. because we don't have a graveyard or a cemetery. And I, I, I had fun turning that into a little trick that, especially with school kids, that they could take home to their resident know-it-all in their mm. family or friends, because everybody's got one, mm-hmm. and ask them as a stumper, 
who's the most famous person buried at Washington National Cathedral? And if you phrase it that way, under my definition, any answer the know-it-all will give you is wrong (laughs) because Wilson isn't buried there. President Wilson is above ground in a tomb, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and Helen Keller's ashes are interred there along with so many other people, but they're not buried in the soil. And so I, I always like that little potential trick question for kids to go stump their parents with. And, and it was a question given to me and then I just turned it back around and said, hey, you can have fun with this, but you have to say buried because I think the most common interpretation that people think of when they hear that word is a casket being lowered into the soil and we just don't have that. I love that you're instinct to that question was to be as snarky as humanly possible (laughs) within the (laughs) realm of respectable answer. (laughs) One of the things I like about you, Chris. (laughs) Do you have any resources that you would recommend for people to check out to learn more about the cathedral from afar, like books or any other resources that you have found um, to be particularly sort of useful or connective for folks who might not be able to visit the cathedral in sort of the immediate future (laughs) for any reason? (laughs) Yeah. One thing I have been enjoying, and it kind of goes back to our chat about seeing the cathedral through other people's perspective, and that's the online portal that the uh, communications team has recently put up in light of the closure where you can go to a section of the website and there's just a a surprising amount of stuff that they've found to put up there, a lot of which I've never seen. I saw a couple, maybe two weeks ago, I saw this really interesting uh, video footage of a fly through the nave. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was shot with an actual drone being piloted through the nave or if it was on camera cranes during the earthquake. Rep- I don't know how it was done, but I had never seen it. Mm-hmm. And that you talk about a unique perspective, like cruising along as a camera at 60 feet off the floor. That was fascinating to me and made me a little envious, perhaps. <laughs> I wasn't around when whoever did that did that because it would have been fun to be there with a camera of my own. So I, I, I like that portal that they're building up and they, they keep adding to it and changing uh, features on it. And so I keep dipping into that. But you also mentioned books and I, I would be completely remiss if I didn't bring up Noel Putnam's wonderful coffee table book, Beauty in the Shadows, mm. and that, uh, that he wrote to document all the wrought iron in the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a he's a Virginia blacksmith, basically retired. I think he's maybe semi, semi, semi retired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe takes one project a year retired. now. Yeah, occasionally not retired. Yes, occasionally but... not retired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, way back in, in my early years, he came out to talk to the docents and we sort of struck up a friendship. I started going out to Rappahannock County where he lives and they have an annual art fair every fall. And so I would see him every fall and sometimes he'd come to the cathedral and we, we became friends and I, I grew to really love wrought iron. As a result of that, I got to work on his book prior to publication. I got to, uh, I ended up contributing uh, about a third of the photographs to that book sort of acting as an editor. And I created a couple appendices that he hadn't planned on because I was thinking like a docent, this is probably going to be the only book on wrought iron we will ever see for the cathedral. How will this help future docents? How will this help (laughs) future tour guides? I think of the Jewels of Light book on the windows and the out of print books on needlework and wood carving. So I wanted to make sure he got some docent useful stuff into that book as well. And Mm -hmm. uh, I absolutely love it. It Mm -hmm. uh, really was a, a wonderful project to work on with him, especially because, you know, again, going back to my talking with you about photography, that's the area that 
over the years has become my very favorite art form of the whole building is our wrought iron collection. It mm-hmm. is second to none in the country. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, two, two to three dozen different blacksmiths contributing over a hundred years, there is so much astonishing master craftsmanship on display in our iron work that mm-hmm. most people never even notice. You know, it's Noel named his book Beauty in the Shadows. And so many of these pieces are, in fact, tucked slightly into the shadows of an archway or a doorway that you're not going to walk through there. You're going to walk past there and you may not give it a second glance. But, oh, if you give it a second glance, it'll knock your socks off. Do you have a favorite example of the ironwork in the cathedral? Because I agree with you. I think it is often that and needlework, I would argue, are the two sort of overlooked art forms that are very practical and very, you know, understated, but hold so much detail and so much weight in the space. I, I am a huge fan of the gate by Thomas Bredlow uh, of Arizona, the Coonley Gate, which is, as you face the doors to the upper level gift shop, it's on the right uh, out in the hall. And that's the one with the beautiful spray of wrought iron roses across the top. Mm-hmm. and uh, great scroll work running all through it, a bunch of very realistic flowers rendered in iron. But the lockbox on that gate is one of the most amazing things I think we have artistically in the building. It's the head of a butterfly with big faceted eyes and antenna and a coiled up proboscis for sipping nectar right under its head. And you lift the ring of the gate handle and there's this beautiful round disc uh, that Bredlow worked in repoussé technique where he hammered the design from the back and it puffs out the finished image on the front. So it's like a very low relief sculpture of four or five different garden bugs and insects and a couple different flowers. And in in the course of working on Noel's book, I struck up a, a pen pal relationship with Tom, who is retired out in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And so I got all these great questions answered by him about the gate. And he, he told me that um, at that time he was making that, he made about seven gates for the cathedral. Um, but the time he was making this one, they had switched all the gates over to requiring a master key. And his first gate that he did was before that. So he designed the entire lock mechanism and turned over a custom key because that's what a blacksmith would do. But now he had to use a commercial lock cylinder, which he hated mm-hmm. uh, the idea of having to put a commercial lock cylinder in his gate. And so he helped camouflage the keyhole on the gate, which is, you know, a little brass round cylinder, like you'd stick your slaves or your master key in. And he has two little repoussé dung beetles rolling it back to their nest as a ball of dung, (laughs) which I think (laughs) might be commentary on what he thinks of commercial Mm -hmm. lock cylinders. (laughs) When we were talking about snark earlier, that seems to come back into play here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I could say from the the letters I've exchanged with Tom that he he has a snarky side and it Mm -hmm. could be very easy to imagine him having a little fun with Mm -hmm. just what his opinion is about being asked to put a commercial lock cylinder into a master blacksmith gate. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's great. I mean, frankly, that makes me like that gate even more. Oh, I love it. It's my favorite piece. And uh, the the behind-the-scenes tour ends at that gate, so I am always sharing stories about that gate. You're like, all right, I know we've been on this tour for 90 minutes, but (laughs) let me walk you through this gate for another 15. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Oh, Um, goodness. So my last and sort of um, 
I don't know, my last question for you is what are you most looking forward to returning to when we have the opportunity to go back? Uh, there's, uh, one thing is really tough because it's, there's so many things. I, I miss my fellow Saturday docents a lot. We have so much fun hanging out between tours. I think it, it goes back to that. I just feel like a deep inhale of happiness when I first walk out of the docent's room and into the nave and I see it in the morning before the building is opened up and there's just that majestic space. I miss that rush of the sort of quiet elation, if that's a, a thing that I feel inside. Like it's just so profoundly moving on some levels um, when I see that. And it's been a long time since I've seen it now with mm-hmm. the building closure. And then of course, you know, as a tour guide, I'm there to help interpret all of that art and beauty and craftsmanship and symbolism to the visitor. And I miss getting the chance to try and spark that same reaction in a stranger that I've been enjoying for decades. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's really nice to reconnect. It's been quite a while since I've talked to you, not just because of social distancing, but because it had been a while. Well, and also, you know, with being a Saturday guide, there's so many staff I never get to interact with on any regular basis because mm-hmm. they're not there on Saturdays <laughs> and I'm yeah. not there on weekdays. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to these and I think it's a great idea. And thank you for including me on Absolutely. the guest list and, uh, and taking the time to chat. It's been fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Have a good All right. Thank you, Aaron. Take care. You too. All right. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Chris for being on this episode of Tower Talks, and thank you, as always, for listening. For Cathedral updates, please be sure to check out the website, www.cathedral.org, and follow the Cathedral on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We hope you and your loved ones are safe and well, and we hope to connect with you again one day in the future on Tower Talks. Tower Talks